John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, we read, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you ever have the opportunity to visit Washington, D.C. and go to the Central Intelligence Agency headquarters in Washington, D.C., as you enter the foyer, inscribed deeply on the marble walls is John 8.32, and it says, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. It's interesting, the United States of America has a long history of sustained freedom. And posted on the CIA's website is their mission statement. And I quote, We are the nation's first line of defense. We accomplish what others cannot accomplish and go where others cannot go. No kidding. We carry out our mission by collecting information that reveals the plans, intentions, and capabilities of our adversaries and provide the basis for decision and action producing timely analysis that provides insight, warning, opportunity to the president and decision makers who are charged with protecting and advancing America's interests, conducting covert action at the direction of the president to preempt threats or achieve U.S. policy objectives, unquote. You need to understand something. The word covert means secret or clandestine or surreptitious. It it can also mean underhanded. It can also mean stealthy. As a matter of fact, some Christians live almost like secret agents. Their Christianity is a covert Christianity. When I read this, I thought, what are America's interests? Well, at the top of our interest list should be to preserve and to protect our freedom. What is the truth about the United States' place in the world? The truth is we have enemies who want to undermine and overthrow our freedoms. But it is also certainly true of being a Christian. You have enemies who want to undermine and overthrow the freedom that you have in Christ. There is a devil who seeks to deceive you and to tempt you. There is a world that wants to pour you into its mold. There is your own flesh that constantly wants to promote your own desires. Some people talk about the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I think it's interesting that in the CIA headquarters, it doesn't list verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The Bible doesn't talk about truth apart from the truth about Jesus. It doesn't talk about truth about truth apart from discipleship. It doesn't talk about freedom apart from the truth about Jesus. It was the famous atheist Thomas Huxley who admitted a man's worst difficulties begins when he's able to do exactly what he likes. The dirty little secret of all mankind is that we are sinners. 
that we are enslaved to sin and much of the problems and circumstances that we face are because of the consequences of sin. We need freedom from sin, freedom to live our lives in simple love and obedience to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news of the gospel is that we can be set free. As a matter of fact, freedom from sin, according to this passage, is conditioned. By that I mean it is freedom conditioned on belief in Jesus, abiding in Jesus. When we believe in Jesus, we experience salvation. When we abide in Jesus, we walk in discipleship. And the result of salvation and discipleship are an understanding of the truth and a willingness, if you will, and an ability to experience freedom. And that includes freedom from sin. Paul the Apostle put it this way in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. I think many times we fail to see the true meaning and the true significance of the word freedom. For many, the word freedom means free to do what I want without consideration of moral or immoral content, of moral or immoral consequence. I think Charles Kingsley got it right when he wrote, there are two freedoms, the false where a man is free to do what he likes, the true where a man is free to do what he ought. We can choose a way that is opposite God's way. And we wind up with the tragic consequences and regrets. No wonder the Bible says there is a way which seems right to every man, but that way leads to destruction. We stumble in the dark. We're tangled in sin. We're strangled by disobedience. And we can only taste the bitter and rancid bile of spiritual death. And so long as we are in bondage to sin, so long as we are in bondage to sin, we will never be truly free. This is the great hope and this is the great declaration. This is the substance of the New Testament message. We have been freed from sin in Christ Jesus And now we're free to serve him. This particular passage points to the requisites, if you will, for freedom. And then the results of freedom. Reread verse 31. It says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Freedom from sin begins with belief. Not just any kind of belief, but according to the passage and according to Jesus, it's belief in Jesus. Belief in Jesus means simply more than believing in the historical reality of Jesus. It means believing everything that Jesus has to say about God. Everything that Jesus has to say about the terror and the horror of sin. It means everything that Jesus has to say about the meaning of life. It is everything that we've already studied up to now. In John chapter 1, in John chapter 2, in John chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. In verse 30, if you go back just one little bit where it says, And he spoke these words, and many believed on him. 
the idea is that there were Jews present who believed his claims, believed his miracles, and believed that the claims rang true, and they put their trust, they put their faith, they put their confidence in Jesus. In our culture, people talk about loving someone, but not being in love with someone. They have a warm, fuzzy, affectionate feeling, but not the kind of feeling that leads to commitment. Here, when I use the term faith, I mean putting your confidence in Jesus. I'm also going to suggest to you that in verse 31, again, where it says, to those Jews who believed in him, it can mean to those Jews who believed him. Even though it's difficult in the English translation, in the Greek translation, it becomes very, very clear that what the text is in fact saying is that Jesus is probably saying that these people who have a lesser belief, an inferior belief, that it's the kind of belief, if you will, that is reluctant or grudging, it's incomplete, it's opinionated, it's less than perfect. In other words, here the idea is they're starting to believe his words, but they haven't made the full journey to complete trust. In our, like I said, in our culture, it's the idea that there is this awakening that begins to take place as they hear the words of Jesus and consider the words of Jesus, and, and they're coming to the conclusion that probably what he's saying is true. The emphasis in the sentence is on the word you. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if... You continue in my word. If you abide in my word, here's the idea. Then you're truly disciples. The word disciples is a Greek word which means a disciplined learner, a person who subjects themselves to a regimen of obedience, if you will. And so here's the idea. They must truly trust him not simply give him lip service. And the real proof would be if they continued in his word. Here, the word is singular. It means the sum and the substance of everything that he has to say. And so it might even be translated teachings. And it means all of the teachings. So in the chapter, some of the religious leaders certainly did not believe As a matter of fact, in verse 13, it says, you are bearing witness of yourself. Your witness isn't true. And remember, the conversation heats up and it escalates to contradiction in verse 13, to insinuation in verse 19, to denial in verse 33, to insult in verse 48, to sarcasm in verse 53. And when you eke your way and edge your way to the end of the chapter, it climactically ends in violence where they seek to kill Jesus. In the audience of Jesus, there are always those who had a sense that there was something wrong, and then there was always those who sensed that there was nothing wrong, just like here and just like now. There are two kinds of people who are listening to this message. There are those who are empty and hungry and thirsty and desiring who are in the dark. And then there are those who have no sense of need, no sense of emptiness, no sense of hunger, 
No sense of thirst. No sense of darkness. No sense of sin. No sense of personal wickedness. No sense of pollution of a life lived apart from God. There is no sense of guilt. There is no sense of shame. There is no sense of ugliness. And by the way, for the religious leaders, when there was no sense of guilt and no sense of shame and no sense of ugliness, there was no pull towards Jesus. And when there's no pull, there's no hope. Someone once said that we're apt to believe what is pleasant rather than what is true. I think that's true. We're far more likely to believe that which is pleasant rather than that which is true. And the words of Jesus aren't always pleasant, but they are always true. And the word of God, as it exposes the unpleasant truth about our wickedness and our rebellion and our disobedience to God's revelation, it at the same time invites us to consider Jesus, to to look to Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to look at him and know him and love him and follow him. And so, for those who had a keen sense of need in it, a keen sense of emptiness and a keen sense of hunger and a keen sense of thirst and darkness and sin and pollution and guilt and shame and the personal stench of lingering death. There was hope. There was a pull. There was a tug. And their hearts reached out to Jesus and they experienced the infancy of faith. The point being the first condition for deliverance from sin is the belief in sin and a willingness to believe that Jesus is the solution to the sin problem. And you all heard the expression that you can't really effectively treat a disease until you're willing to acknowledge that you have a disease. You'll never embrace the cure for a disease until you actually embrace the fact that there's something terribly wrong. And so it begins with belief. It continues with abide. Look at the end. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The first condition for freedom from sin is to believe in Jesus. The second condition for freedom from sin is to abide in Jesus. That is, to abide and obey the revelation of his message. John MacArthur rightly comments, and I quote, those whose faith is the real saving trust, those who are truly, actually, in reality, disciples of Jesus Christ will remain Abide in both faith and obedience to his word. The present tense of the verb, emi, that is, if you abide in my word, you are, suggests that Jesus was not telling them the requirements for becoming a disciple. He did not say, if you continue in my word, you will become my genuine disciples. Instead, he declares that the nature of true discipleship consists of continued obedience to his word. Scripture affirms that only those who obey Christ are truly his disciples. Jesus doesn't leave us with the excuse that you can believe one thing and say another and do another. The word abide simply means the place where you stay, the place where you remain. And where does the believer abide? 
He says, if you abide in my word. And remember what I've said to you, that the word of Jesus is the revelation of Jesus that he has given from the very beginning in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, and 6, and 7. In, in that one word is encapsulated everything that Jesus has said. It's all of his promises and it's all of his warnings. So the person who abides in his word also abides in him substantially in Christ. So the person who really knows Jesus will continue with Jesus. And that means that the person who believes in Jesus will study the word of God. They'll be willing to walk in the word of God. But you know what else they'll be willing to do? They'll be willing to obey the word of God. The proof or the evidence that a person has made a false profession, a superficial profession, a disingenuous profession, is their failure to continue. On the voyage which resulted in the discovery of America, Columbus refused to listen to the threats of his sailors as Day after day and week after week, no land appeared. The sailors threatened mutiny, and they demanded that, that Columbus turn back. But Columbus wouldn't listen. And each day, he entered only two words in the ship's log. Do you know what they were? Sailed on. I like that. Sailed on. An old black preacher was asked to define Christian perseverance. I'd never heard it defined better. He answered, it means firstly, to take hold. Secondly, to hold on. Thirdly, to never let go. That's it. That's it exactly. You take hold. You hold on. You never let go. Jesus said almost those exact words in John 15, 7 a little differently. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Gordon MacDonald wrote, A man's real belief is that which he lives by. What a man believes is the thing he does, not the thing he thinks. In the end, your thinking will turn into your reality. And he lists the results of freedom. Look for yourself in verse 32. Jesus says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Listen carefully. The results of freedom begin with belief. They continue with discipleship. And look what it says, and you shall know the truth. So here's salvation, believe, discipleship, abide, results, listen carefully, in the knowledge of the truth. And remember, truth in this context means the truth about man's sinful condition, the truth about Jesus as Lord and Savior. We are made aware of moral truth, working truth, living truth. Truth is not simply something that we know. Truth is something that we do. 
And so here, truth contains within it the promise of something that you can both know and do. It is the knowledge and experience of true reality as opposed to false reality. French philosopher Blaise Pascal wrote, to get the best out of life, great matters have to be given a second thought. And so let's give the subject of truth a second thought for just a moment. Remember, if you plod forward in the Gospel of John, you get past chapter 9 and 10 and you continue past chapter 12 and 15 and 17. You come to John chapter 18 and it's there that Jesus has his encounter with the Roman procurator Pontius Pilate. And beginning in chapter 18 verse 37, Jesus, Pilate asks Jesus this pregnant question, quote, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. When he says, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth, it's his way of saying testimony. I am giving testimony to reality. Remember, the truth is that which corresponds to reality. The reality about man's condition, the reality about sin, the reality about Savior, the reality about salvation, the reality about forgiveness, the reality about reconciliation. And then he says, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. The idea being, If you know the truth and you love the truth and you long for the truth and you desire the truth, your ears will open and you'll hear what Jesus is saying. It's interesting, Pilate's response. He said to him, what is truth? Don't you hate it when people ask you questions and they never stick around to get the answer? What is truth? Pilate is about to take him and order truth's execution. You know what's interesting about people who try to make the truth go away? Listen carefully. It always has a way of coming back to life and speaking again. It's interesting to me. One basic definition of truth is that which corresponds to reality or the way things are. In the Bible, the word truth speaks of integrity, of reality, something that is actual as opposed to something that is not actual, something that is real as opposed to something which is counterfeit. It carries with it the idea of being free from falsehood. Mortimer Adler, the great editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica and and himself one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, in his essays on truth, acknowledged that there are at least two components to truth, that it is immutable, that means it's not subject to change, it is incorrigible, which means it's not subject to perfection. Truth will always be true. Truth is not changing. Truth is not subject to perfection. It will always be true. And 
In John chapter 17, verse 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he, he says, sanctify them or make them holy or set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. If you use the criteria that there are only two things that make truth possible, immutability, never subject to change, incorrigibility, never subject to perfection, I've only discovered four things ever that are absolutely, positively, unequivocally, unabashedly, non-negotiably true. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the fourth thing, everything they say and do. That's truth. Jesus Christ declared himself to be the truth in John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of truth in 1 John chapter 5. And look what it says at the end of verse 32. And the truth shall make you free. When the Emancipation Proclamation was taken to President Lincoln by Secretary Seward, for the president's signature, Mr. Lincoln took a pen and he dipped it in ink and he moved his hand to the place for his signature and he held it for a moment and then he dropped the pen. And after a little hesitation, he again took up the pen and he went through the same movement as before. And Mr. Lincoln turned to Secretary Seward and he said, I have been shaking hands since 9 o'clock this morning and my right arm is almost paralyzed. If my name ever goes into history, it will go into history for this act. And I want the whole world to know that my whole soul is in it. If my hand trembles when I sign the proclamation... All those who examine the document hereafter will say he hesitated. He then turned to the table. He took up the pen again and slowly and firmly he wrote Abraham Lincoln in that signature which the whole world now finds familiar. And you know what he did after he signed? He looked up and he smiled and he said, That'll do. Do you realize that the signature of the Emancipation Proclamation did not free a single slave? All it did was it gave the slave the right to fight for his own freedom. And do you realize that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose from the dead, It is in that resurrection that God the Father signed his signature in a firm and not a trembling hand, providing an irrevocable response to your circumstance. I will let you go. I will set you free. Again, John MacArthur writes, The reality of believing in Jesus, obeying his word, and knowing the truth brings spiritual freedom. Such freedom is multifaceted and includes freedom from the bondage of falsehood. From Satan, John seventeen fifteen. 
from condemnation, John 8, 1. From judgment, John 3, 18. From spiritual ignorance, John 8, 12. From spiritual death, John 8, 51. From judgment, John 3, 18. From sin. And here's what John MacArthur writes, and I love it. And most significantly, in this context, sin. Freedom from sin. When MacArthur describes this freedom as multifaceted, I can't help but think of a brilliant jewel reflecting and shining and dazzling. The psalmist described truth in the inward parts. In Psalm 51, 6, in other words, it is the core value. It is the central circumstance. This is the kind of truth that is opposed to sham. This is the kind of truth that hates hypocrisy. This is the kind of truth that permits no compromise with evil. This is the kind of truth that even avoids the appearance of evil. That's why Paul the Apostle writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22, abstain. That means don't do it. Abstain from every form of evil. Do you love the truth? Do you rejoice in the truth? Do you act on the truth? It's interesting to me in the New Testament, the scriptures sometimes contrast between the written truth, which is the Bible, and Jesus, who is the living truth. The truth has the ability to set people free from the chains of doubt and from the chains of despair and from the chains of fear and from the chains of the future, human beings armed with the knowledge of the truth do not need to sink into the quicksand of uncertainty. I've said it often and I'll repeat it again. One of the most important lessons my pastor ever told me, a word that keeps ringing in my ears over and over again, do not give up what you know for what you don't know. Never abandon in the dark what you've seen in the light. What do you know for certain? Do you know for certain that Jesus Christ loves you? Do you know for certain the gospel story? Do you know for certain the reality of, what, of his life and his death and his resurrection? Jesus claims to have revealed the truth. And not just revealed the truth, but the nature of truth and the meaning of truth and the certainty and the future and the direction which truth will go. So what is it that enslaves us? What is it that hinders us from true freedom? What is it that keeps you in the dark? What is it that keeps you in despair and doubt? What is it that holds you down? This week when I was preparing my study, I came across a, a press release by Freedom House. Freedom House is a watchdog organization that monitors and evaluates countries and awards them the status of free, partially free, or not free. 
Freedom House defines freedom this way, and I quote, Freedom is the opportunity to act spontaneously in a variety of fields outside the control of the government and or other centers of potential domination. Freedom House measures freedom according to two broad categories, political rights and civil liberties. Political rights enable people to participate freely in the political process through the right to vote, compete for public office, elect representatives who have a decisive impact on public policies and who are accountable to the electorate. Civil liberties allow for the freedoms of expression and belief, associational and organizational rights, the rule of law, personal autonomy without interference from the state. The reason why I like that is because, again, now we can begin to have a way of thinking about freedom and not freedom or partial freedom. And again, they said the number of countries judged free by that standard, 90 representing 46% of the global population. The number of countries judged partially free, 60 or 18% of the world's population. 43 countries on the planet Earth were judged not free, representing 36% of the global population. The Palestinian Authority was downgraded this year from partially free to not free at all. Based on that definition, significant freedom has been lost in the former Soviet Union, in the Middle East, in North Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa, in Pakistan, in Kenya, in Egypt, in Nigeria, in Venezuela. And I quote, Not one of the countries that registered the lowest possible scores in the Freedom House Index, the worst of the worst, exhibited signs of improvement. This represents a break from a trend formerly observable in past years when world freedom stagnated or declined in which progress was registered in some of the world's most tightly controlled dictatorships. The news story caused me to ask this question. How many Christians are free? Are partially free? Are not free at all? Are there Christians still struggling with prejudice and hate? How long are we going to be divided and isolated? How will you judge Christianity and Christians in the area of hatred and bitterness and hostility and war and assault and killing and crime, injustice, enslavement, abuse, emptiness, loneliness? How long? Are we going to embrace fear and selfishness and hoarding and hunger and sickness? A Christian, a follower of Jesus by very definition, is the one who believes in Jesus who believes in what he has to say and do. And if you love Jesus, and if you are learning from Jesus, it is impossible, it is impossible, it is impossible to do anything other than acquire 
the truth and then walk in the truth and live in the truth and truth brings freedom and freedom brings release and deliverance from bondage. An unbeliever, an unbeliever, H.G. Wells once said that the voice of our neighbors often sound louder in our ears than the voice of God. This from a person who doesn't even know God. Sadly, he's right. The disciple is the person who has ceased to care what others say and then cares only about what God has to say. What does God have to say? about you, about your life and your circumstances, your heart and your sorrow. Isn't it interesting? It's been my experience when people are free to do as they please. Do you know what they normally do? They imitate each other. Hey, you're free to do whatever you want. Well, then I want to do exactly what she's doing. Mom, everybody else is doing it. Now tell me again what it is that you're looking for. I want the freedom to look like, talk like, act like, dress like, respond like everybody else. But that isn't who you are. Jesus didn't set you free so that you could be like everybody else. Jesus set you free so that you could be exactly like him so that you could love him and love the way that he loves and serve the way that he serves. The philosopher Goethe wrote, none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe that they are free. And if you believe at this very moment that you're free to do whatever you want with whomever you want, however you want, then you're living in a very dark and empty space. Are you free from the shadow of doubt and despair? Are you still groping in the dark? There is a deliverance from sin. It comes in believing, not just in anything, but believing in Jesus. It comes from abiding, not just in anything, but abiding in Jesus. It comes from knowing, but not just knowing anything. It's knowing the truth about sin and knowing the truth about salvation and knowing the truth about forgiveness and knowing the truth about redemption. That's freedom. That's real freedom. Charles Wesley, the great, great hymn writer, put it this way. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Isn't that great? Something happens when you truly, truly come to know Jesus. Your imagination catches on fire. And you're no longer content to live in the dark. You want to live in the light. 
we're set free to experience salvation and joy and love and peace and satisfaction and hope. Too good to be true? Only if you reject it. Sadly, sadly, the next bout that Jesus has in John chapter 8 is to deal with yet another bout of resistance. of a a group of people who insist on remaining in bondage. But that's for next week. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you that Jesus has given us the ingredients for freedom to believe in Jesus in such a way that we trust him completely to continue in Jesus, that we persevere, that we take Jesus and we hold on, that we take Jesus and then we take hold and then we hold on and we never let go And Lord, for that person whose fingers are slipping, for that person who feels the weight, the pressure in their upper arms and their shoulders, they feel like they're holding on for dear life. Lord, I pray that you would intercede on their behalf. Lord, I pray that you would take your strong arms and your firm grasp and your committed love and that, Lord, you would throw yourself and all that you are around their hearts. Lord, I pray for that person who's clinging in a very dark and empty world. Lord, I pray that they would let go of the darkness that they would refuse the emptiness and that they would embrace Jesus and all he is and all that he has. And for that person who has wandered far from you, Lord, I pray that right now in the quietness of their own heart and in the privacy of of their own circumstances that they would whisper to you, Lord, I don't know what else to do except to hold on to you. Lord, I pray that you would lift the sail. And as a friend used to sing, that they would sail on until they find what it is they're looking for, that they would trim their sails and turn their ship around to the Lord. Lord, I pray that they will find joy and peace and love and forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation in the only place where real truth can be found, spiritual truth, the truth about Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.